From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the Sustainability Consortium turns 10, the greening of finance, a model for sustainable urban resilience, and can agriculture be good for the climate? We are getting back to our roots this week on 350. It's August 9th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of GreenBiz 350. Joining me as she does every week from New Jersey is GreenBiz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, hello, hello. How is your week going? How's it been? Pretty good. It's uh, muggy and hot and thundery here in New Jersey this week, which is Another normal. Words, summer. Yeah. Summer. Yeah, it's normal. <laughs> Yay, normal weather. <laughs> yeah, we should celebrate that. I know. <laughs> you know. And we're having the same here in the Bay Area. It's the what we, we lovingly call foggest, which is the morning fog oh. that burns off by, at least here in, in Oakland, uh, by 11 o'clock um, later in San Francisco because it's closer to where it originates. Um, and then we have these beautiful, sunny, 72, 75 degree days. It's glorious, but it's just, as always in the Bay Area, dress for three seasons. <laughs> <laughs> well, as someone who hates air conditioning, I just don't like the, the sort of artificial air. I, I hate when it's like this because I hate not having my windows open at night. So I'm not a very well, good summer you, person. You love the Bay Area because we have uh, natural air conditioning. The, the, the fog that comes in cleans things up. So, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but yeah, we had a really busy week here at headquarters. Um, notably, Mark Tule, our newly appointed uh, head of the uh, sort of green finance space that we've been building out, and will uh, came out from D.C. this week and. Uh, We'll have a conversation with him a little bit later in this podcast, but uh, we held a brain trust meeting on Wednesday where we had a, it's a small group of friends in the in the finance area from a number of big organizations, and I won't name them because it was a sort of Chatham House kind of thing, but people who participated in the Greenfin Summit we did in Phoenix in February and, uh, and will be part of uh, the one we do next February where we are kind of blowing it up a little bit, um, going from a half day to a full day, 100 people to 200 people, invitation only still, uh, but gonna, uh, you know, creating it's almost a mini conference around the interests of uh, companies, uh, the interests of institutional investors and asset managers and the ratings and rankings organizations. Uh, just a fascinating area. So we got people who are much, much smarter than we are into the room and had just a great <laughs> conversation to talk about, you know, how do we bring, not just how do we bring people together, but what's the conversation that needs to be had that can actually make a difference? Well, I look forward to meeting Mark. Tell me a little bit about his background. Uh, Mark is, has been in uh, this space really for 25 years, a long, long time. I met him back in the in the, the 90s and back in the 20th century, as I like to say, uh, when he was employee number one at Ceres. Uh, and uh, later from mm -hmm. there, you know, just had a journey that took him through a number of different organizations, some of which he founded, some of which he worked for, but all having to do with advancing uh, ESG, environmental, social, and governance metrics, measurement, and sustainable investing. And so he 
kind of knows everybody in the space, which is great. And um, as you'll hear in a little bit, has just has a great depth of knowledge and um, the spirit of that we love at, at, at Green Biz, which is bringing people together and helping them make a difference and really move mm-hmm. and accelerate uh, things that are already happening in the economy, but having them move further faster. So that uh, was part of our In the Office Week in Review. But, you mm-hmm. know, let's go back to the editorial side with the Week in Review. So let's start with actually two, count them, two Q&A stories that we did, interviews with notables. Um, and the first one is uh, with the CEO of the Sustainability Consortium, Ewan Murray, uh, who joined a, a few years ago uh, and has been leading this organization that's just celebrated its 10th year. Uh, and it started off uh, basically by Walmart in around 2000, well, 10 years ago, uh, to create uh, initially scorecards and uh, sort of bring the Walmart's supply chain along, but not just Walmart's, but bringing in other retailers. And it had some fits and starts and a number of different um, executive directors. And I think what's really interesting, and it really comes out in this piece, um, uh, in this interview done by our special projects editor, Elsa Wenzel, that um, it's really hit its stride. Uh, It's got 100 members uh, from the big brands to some other big retailers in addition to Walmart. And they're building out uh, products and ratings and ranking systems and uh, deep research at the product level, not at the company level. Um, we know who are good companies or not good companies, at least according to a number of other indices and, and, and rankings. But this is looking at how do we really assess products and how do you uh, drive that change back in the supply chain in a way that you can measure and compare and uh, and and actually know that it's making a difference and not just window dressing. Yeah, I love the focus on data here. I'm fascinated by supply chain data, and I think for me, the reason this this organization continues to become even more relevant is just the the the, the dramatic interest in traceability. Right? Where did this thing come from? How did this thing get here? Is this thing going to be available in the future? Whatever that thing is, it could be a, a raw resource or a, a you know a component of some nature, a, a metal or or chemical even. And the the issue of that and and how it applies in a circular economy, like is this thing safe? Should it be circulated? Should it be taken out of circulation? That's only going to become more relevant. So I feel like you know when you look at these organizations that come together at the beginning of a, a process. Um, and then when that process is ended, you know, where do they go? Well, this, this whole issue of supply chain traceability is only becoming more and more important. And I love the fact that they're doing this at the, the product level, because as any supplier will tell you, I mean, like if you're in all of these companies' supply chains and you have to give them all different information or different sorts of specs and feeds and, and whatever, that's a big resource strain, especially if you're a small company. So organizations like this are super relevant and super important, not just for the big companies, but also for the really small companies that are part of these supply chains. Yeah. And as you and told Elsa, he said, really what we did was we'd help create a common language and terminology in the whole industry without asking anyone to give up what makes their initiative unique and valuable. And that's kind of what you're talking about, which is, you know, how do we 
you know, get everybody on board, but not make them conform to something that may not be in their in their business interest or their corporate culture, uh, or just the way that the company is is built. And and now uh, they're starting to work in the clothing and apparel, uh, which is, um, you know, as as he explained, he said, you know, we know what the supply chain is of apparel, but what happens once a consumer buys something is a lot less clear. And they just got some funding from Target to take a look at how uh, embedding sensors and clothes and other things help to create a circular economy for, for fashion. Uh, and, and others have been working on that, but I think this is, again, to your point, this is how, how do we get the data so that we can re really understand this, uh, how things are used and what happens to them. And out of that data can create some new kinds of solutions. So I'm very mm -hmm. excited and continue to be excited about where the sustainability consortium is going. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll see, I'm sure, a lot more to come. But uh, the other Q&A, I know this is uh, near and dear to you, Heather, was with uh, our good friend Nancy Fund, who's the founder and managing director of DBL Partners, which is, stands for Double Bottom Line, which is basically about combining competitive financial returns with sort of environmental, social benefits. Um, and she's been a really a pioneer in, in what used to be called clean tech investing, and now it's just called investing. <laughs> and uh, she talked to uh, our colleague Sarah Golden about what's going on in, in her world. One of my favorite quotes from this interview is the reason I love this interview. She told Sarah, quote, I think people aren't thinking broadly enough about the scope of the opportunity and sometimes create an artificially narrow set of possibilities, end quote. That's, she's talking about the transition for the clean economy. And the point she's making is that people sometimes equate clean economy with clean energy. Um, but Nancy's really looking at, and her companies are really looking at other um, important areas. And for example, um, she's got an investment in Appeal, um, which is one of these companies that's working on uh, a coating to keep fruits and vegetables fresh throughout the supply chain and therefore address food waste. She's also a, a backer of uh, Farmers Business Network, I believe the name is, but the point being that they have a, that's a data, it's a data exchange for farmers to get a better handle on how the practices that they're using are affecting their, their long-term sustainability as well as the sustainability of the, the food supply over time for the the bigger companies. Um, and then also, surprise, surprise, well, not really, they were an early uh, backer of The Real Real, which is the unicorn circular economy company in basically consignment, in fashion consignment that we wrote about recently. So I think for me, the fundamental point of what she's doing and what her company is focusing on is trying to remind people that it's not just about solar and wind. It's so much else. And there's so many great areas of investment, um, everything from imaging and mapping to, again, um, fashion and circular economy models. So it's a great sort of, um, I don't know, you, you talked about the brain trust earlier. So it's sort of a great um, brain rocker, if you will, to get people thinking differently. <laughs> That's a good term. Yeah. And, and it's also cool is to see that the things that she's excited about and investing in uh, map nicely to a lot of what we're doing at Verge. And of course, she'll be part of, as she has been for a few years, part of the Verge conference this year um, as one of, I believe, the Accelerate uh, industry experts. Um, and so uh, she talks about the electrification of everything and big data and its applications, as you said, in farming and organics and 
how to trade energy in small amounts instead of uh, you know big chunks using blockchain and uh, circular economy, uh, space, uh, all, all kinds of things. So uh, it's 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 great to see how the people who are placing their bets with real real dollars, <laughs> uh, big, you know millions and millions of dollars, um, are aligning with the topics that that we think have been interesting and and are bringing to our audience. So that's Joel. I have to do a shameless plug for Verge Accelerate. Oh, I must. No shame there. I must oh. do it. Uh, there are 38, count them, 38 pitches that you can vote on to see who will be on the, the main stage at Verge 19. Um, that, that page went live this week. So I encourage you to pop on over to the Verge 19 uh, uh, event site. And there you can find all of the Accelerate semi, I guess we call them semi-finalists. Um, who are who are vying for an opportunity to fast pitch their product, um, their their idea, their technology. So get on there. And the finalists will be on stage at Verge in Oakland in um, the end of uh, October, October 20th to 22nd. So yeah, vote early, vote often. We have one more story to discuss this week, and it's about one of our favorite topics, agriculture and its impact on on the world and carbon emissions and so forth, but not just its negative impact, it's um, potentially positive impact. It's uh, contributed by our friends at Ceres and the title is Growing Change, Can Agriculture Be Good for the Climate? And um, it just goes back to the, the potential of, of agriculture activities um, to be a carbon sink, if you will, to, to, to be able to capture um, the, the greenhouse gases and, and if, if you use the right practices, you know, w- whether you can, you can make an impact in a positive way. Um, agriculture, you know, it's actually something that, um, you know, California, I, when I think about it from here on my East Coast advantage, I always think clean energy, all this solar and wind and, and so forth um, activities. But, you know, it's a good reminder that California really has to focus on its agricultural industry to get to the place it wants to get. It's, it's set a goal to become carbon neutral by 2045. And we're going to see, I think, a lot more activity as far as um, programs and so forth that address the state's farming um, impact and how how the uh, the folks over at the Air Resources Board are helping put together plans to encourage good land and soil management so that things like farmlands and forests and so forth can be more resilient and so that they can help toward that goal. So it's a, it's a, it's a great um, sort of synopsis of programs that are available for the agricultural businesses in the state and, and that could help towards that end. And what Kirsten and, and Barbara do so well in this is to bring forth some of the big companies that are working in regenerative farming, which until fairly recently was not something that big companies talked about. And they talk about um, General Mills and the work they've been doing. They, they committed, we've, we've written about this, to advance regenerative ag on a million acres of farmland by uh, in about 10 years. Um, talks about Fetzer Vineyards and their Bonterra Organic Vineyards, how they've been uh, practicing uh, regenerative techniques, which are you know, go beyond organic in in terms of reducing tillage and allowing the soil to nourish itself and the plant residue of previous seasons become and become uh, a grist uh, for the soil Uh, and and I love this quote from uh, Rob Jackson of Stanford's Woods Institute for the Environment uh, that they include here they said soil says Rob Jackson is 
is a no-risk climate solution with big co-benefits. Uh, mm. Fostering soil health protects food security and builds resilience to droughts, floods, and urbanization. And, um, you know, there's just so many things when you get, well, into the weeds. Uh, so many other farming <laughs> benefits, lower costs for water and fertilizers because healthier soil doesn't need as much fertilizers or pesticides. And, um, and this is why regenerative farming is gaining adherence uh, in farmers and just beginning in food and beverage companies. So this is something we've been mm -hmm. writing a little bit about, and I, and I hope we'll be tracking a lot more in the months and years to come. And you mentioned them by first name, and I'm going to give a little uh, last name plug to both of them. The authors on this were Kirsten James, Director of California Policy Program for Ceres, and Barbara Grady, Communications Manager for Ceres. We welcomed a new member of the GreenBiz team this week, Mark Tule, who brings 25 years experience advancing ESG metrics, measurement and sustainable investing. We'll be driving the finance and ESG track at our GreenBiz 20 event, as well as the accompanying GreenFin Summit. Mark joins me now. Hey, Mark, welcome. Great to be here. So you've been in this field of environmental social governance uh, metrics and, and all of that for a long, long time uh, from the 90s, well before it was really a thing. What did you see back then? I saw for the first time that companies and investors were willing to engage with each other. It was just at the starting point of that, and now we're at an inflection point when that happens every day. When I was at Ceres, I was a first employee, and at that time, companies like Exxon and others did not engage with investors like they do today. And it's really been a uh, transformation in the way that uh, companies uh, engage with investors to drive what we call sustainable value creation. So what's happened now that's made that come to be? Well, there's a crisis in confidence in capitalism and capital markets. Um, there was a recent uh, article in Harvard Business Review and said 51% of young adults between 18 and 29 do not have do not support capitalism. So we're, we have a real crisis in capitalism. And at the same time, we've got tremendous innovation happening in the market with over 2,500 companies signing the UN principles for responsible investors representing over 85 trillion. So we're at this kind of crossroads here between are we going to be able to restore trust in companies and capitalism? Uh, Will, will the younger generation support this new economy and this new direction or, or not? Well, that's interesting because uh, the idea of capitalism and climate change, for example, I wrote a piece this week about uh, capitalism's change of climate and, and how, how some of the things we're talking about here, some of the insurance uh, industry is stepping up and, and, and the capitalism is sort of doing what it's supposed to do, which is to price risk. Uh, into the valuation of companies. But if capitalism is broken, and we're talking about ESG as just a way of, of sort of bringing out some of the information in, in a capitalist uh, uh, culture or economy, are we doing enough? Are we tinkering at the margins here? Or does this actually affect the kind of change we need? And I think that's the right question, and we're at an inflection point here in deciding which path we're going to choose. And... If we don't, I think we are dancing around at the margins, but 
uh, I'm very hopeful. The difference between try and triumph is a little oomph. So I think we need a little bit of more of that. Um, and I think that companies and CEOs and investors, if you look at the Larry Fink letter from BlackRock, CEO of BlackRock, if you look at what State Street is doing in terms of driving uh, board diversity, uh, there's a new awakening among the world's largest investors on their responsibility for people, profit, and planet. And I think it's, it's encouraging and it's positive and I'm hopeful. So what do you think we can do at our events at GreenBiz 20 in Phoenix in February and uh, at the GreenFin Summit that will be, uh, we start launch this year and will be expanding next year? What, what do you think the role that we can play and how it, we can help uh, our audience of, of corporate sustainability people move this forward within their companies? Yeah, I, and I think now is the time to do this. I think we can, we can do four things. We can uh, describe and um, tackle what is what it takes to better understand risk. You mentioned risk before, and right now we have an incomplete picture of risk, and we need to we have myopia in that. And so we, we need, what we need to do is get a more complete picture of risk through the ESG prism. Number two. We need to harmonize metrics. There's companies now, over 10,000 companies follow one standard and uh, over 100 companies support this new standard coming out called SASB. And I think there's a standards revolution that's happening and we need to accelerate that harmonization among these groups. We need to improve data quality. Uh, right now, companies are from Mars and investors are from Venus. So we need to kind of improve the way that investors um, get information and integrate this into their investment decision making in a fundamental and, and clear way. And the fourth thing, fourth thing we need to do is align with the sustainable development goals. So if we can use GreenFin as a platform to accelerate that discussion and convening and solutions on this, we've done a real special thing. And I feel confident that we'll do that. Well, I'm confident, too, because you're on board, and it's really great to have you as part of this team. Mark Tulay is the new finance and ESG program manager at GreenBiz. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you. Once upon a time, along the Hackensack River in Kearney, New Jersey, there was a thriving shipyard that broke worldwide records for its manufacturing capabilities. It built a vessel every five days at its production peak in World War II, employing 30,000 people and boasting its own hospital and train station. A century later, visionary real estate developer Hugo New is reimagining the 130-acre Riverside site, which suffered extensive flooding during 2012's Superstorm Sandy, as a model for sustainable urban resilience. It's a vision that CEO Wendy New hopes will be, quote, transferable and transformative, end quote, one that inspires other urban communities seeking to prioritize a more inclusive, sustainable sort of economic development. That focus was a big motivator for the former Environmental Protection Agency official who joined Hugo New this spring to spearhead the ambitious adaptive infrastructure overhaul at what is known as Carney Point. Dominique Luckenhoff was a senior advisor to the administrator of the EPA's Mid-Atlantic region. She is now Senior Vice President of Corporate Affairs and Sustainability for Hugo New. I spoke with her 
Wendy New, and several other Hugo New executives earlier this summer. Here are Lukenhoff's thoughts on why she's inspired by the model that her new employer is advocating. So I, I was with EPA for many years, and there are many things that, that I saw this place as a model for where we're trying to go, but some of that history was looking at these older industrialized areas that had been forgotten. I've worked, I was very involved with the environmental justice uh, focus for EPA and um, have worked with a number of these communities. We had urban initiatives. You know, and you just saw it play out, the industrialization of, you know, this, the east coast of, of the U.S., um, where we had vibrant cities and then there was flight and then we were left with sort of, you know, this sort of um, legacy pollutants, um, impoverished neighborhoods. Yeah. So this happening um, was something we didn't see. And we've had many, had many conversations about it. How do you incentivize this kind of redevelopment for, the, for 21st century infrastructure resilience? The $1 billion redevelopment project is already reactivating many of the historic shipbuilding facilities on the site. Most recently, they were used as warehouses and distribution hubs. Now they are spaces for clean tech businesses such as Vertical Farms, Bowery, and Oshai. They are already tenants or circular economy enterprises like Babo International Trade, which specializes in sustainable bamboo paper products. One of the biggest impacts that the Kearney Point project will have is on improving the stormwater infrastructure. Even before Sandy, the local road leading into the site was prone to heavy flooding, which isn't just an inconvenience, it's a health hazard. And in May, at Hugo News prompting, the town received a $3 million grant from the U.S. Economic Development Administration's Public Work Program. That money will redevelop Hackensack Avenue, the primary access road that leads into the Kearney Point site. Today, the surface is riddled with potholes, prone to flooding, and offers limited pedestrian access, which makes it difficult to get in and out of the facility. The planned green street will widen the roadway to include a 12-foot sidewalk and a 28-foot promenade with bicycle lanes. Here are Lukenhoff's thoughts on combined sewage overflows and why the sorts of water quality problems that surfaced recently in Flint, Michigan are more pervasive than many realize. Do you know what CSOs are? Combined sewer overflows, meaning failing wastewater treatment facilities, meaning raw sewage in the water. So there's about um, perhaps even as high as um, 3 billion gallons, 3 to 10 billion gallons of raw sewage around the country in the water. We, you know, we're, in, we're, we're dealing with deteriorated infrastructure. Um, so you hear much about this so-called infrastructure build and trust, and everybody's trying to get their heads around it. Um, wastewater treatment, drinking water. You know, we, we, people got excited with Flint. It's, Flint was in the news. Yeah, that's the one. That's that, the but there are the many out, out there, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, what we're, what, what we're kind of calling it is private investment for public good. So you just saw where we helped to influence um, upgrading of a street as a, not only a, a better surface area and better transportability and, and walkability, but 
to address storm water and flooding as well, which is the way we have to start thinking. Right. Because many of these little com communities won't do it on their own. At Kearney Point, Hugo New is actively partnering with state, civic, and federal agencies so that the community can have a voice in how the plan unfolds. That public-private connection is something that Wendy New is championing strongly from the C-suite and that she believes is imperative for inclusive urban economic development. Wendy New grew into her current role after the untimely passing of her husband, John New, in 2013. She began her career as a social worker and was deeply involved in the company's metals and electronics recycling operations. In the final highlight from our interview, Wendy New reflects on her guiding vision at Kearney Point and why she hopes other real estate developers will adopt a similar ethos. I, I think I mentioned earlier, I'm not a real estate developer. Um, you know, I came out of the recycling business. I've been an environmentalist. I've worked in prisons. Um, I have a pretty diverse background. And real estate, frankly, I never thought I was going to end up in real estate. But I look at real estate as being a platform to advance all those other initiatives, whether it's environmental, social justice, um, that I think this is a perfect platform to do just that in terms of um, not just the environmental initiatives that we talked about and the fact that we really don't have a choice in terms of adapting to this new normal. But secondly, in terms of social justice issues that we, you know, have to recognize that, you know, this economy has only worked for a select few <coughs> and that there have been many people left behind in general. Mm -hmm. And so what we're doing here and what we plan to do more of as we go forward is to ensure that we are inclusive and that we... Um, you know, look through each and every decision we make through those lenses, whether it's environmental and social justice. Um, of course, we have to make money. Um, we have to be sustainable. Otherwise, we're not going to succeed because we want this to be transferable and to be transformative and hopefully lead to others doing um, this kind of development. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this episode. And don't forget to go to the Verge Accelerate voting. We'd love to get your input. Also, while you're over there, check out our other podcast, Center Stage. It's the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. And while you're checking out stuff, make sure to check out our newsletters. We publish a different one each day, Monday through Friday. That's five weekly newsletters and all. It's all free. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. Greenbiz 350's director this week is Isaac Silk. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week for another edition of Greenbiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Greenbiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. <laughs>